0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: This episode has been brought to you by Worldwide Soba, a Japanese noodle production company.
0: This week on a special bonus episode of Meet and Three, we're celebrating Mardi Gras with an ode to the king cake, the most delicious custom of carnival season.
2: This is kind of like a terrible
0: comparison, but it's kind of like a braided New Orleans babka, if you really think about the actual technique of it. Do we know why
1: they put a baby in the cake yet? You
0: better
2: be careful where you get that cake, because your friends and coworkers in New Orleans are going to have an
3: opinion about it.
0: Tune in to Meet in 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, available wherever you listen to podcasts.
3: Welcome to
0: Processing,
3: a show about the intersection between food and grief, with your hosts Zara Tangora and Bobby Comforto. Today on the show, we are joined by Nicole Bailey. Nicole is an amazing human and a dear friend of mine and also co-host of Life's a Banquet podcast here on Heritage Radio. Um, We were really honored to have Nicole on to share her story uh, about her mother and her upbringing and we hope you enjoy our chat with Nicole. have we known each other? I think we've known each other since the year, since the year 2000. This is Conan O'Brien's podcast. So 19 years. <laughs> yes. I think we've known each other since about the year 2014. Okay. And we met, Nicole and I met, uh, when I had my restaurant Brucie. And you were, uh, started as a server and became the general manager. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so basically we started our relationship in food. Yep. And then you two met, Bobby and Nicole, and became... <laughs> Best buds, <laughs> you guys are inseparable. We hit it off right away. <laughs> no, but you did. Well, yeah, you learn a lot about people really fast working in a restaurant, right? Totally. So kind of just uh, become instant family, and there's something about—I mean, obviously, alcohol. I think plays a huge <laughs> role in that. Mm-hmm, tend the to bonding. open up more, yeah.
1: And hard work, yeah, yeah, totally. And
3: hard work—you know about that, mom. I mean, you were in the trenches with people when you used to have the love and oven. Was it similar for you? Absolutely. When you work with people, you
1: really know their insides.
3: Yeah, when you're here, you're family. Or when you're a serial killer, you also know their insides. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Anyway, so yeah, we've spent a lot of holidays together. We've uh, eaten a lot of nachos together. We have, yes. We shared a love of nachos. We all had Thanksgiving together that one year. hmm That was lovely. Oh, seafood Tower was beautiful. But yeah, I mean, I, I instantly met you and felt that you were like a really warm, really deep person who's like extremely both guarded and easy to talk to at the same time hmm. do you find that to be true about yourself yeah
2: I think that that sounds accurate um although I think earlier in my life I probably would not have not read I didn't recognize the guarded part as much yeah. it was like subconscious
3: yeah <laughs> yeah well we build we build walls right mm-hmm. yeah definitely over time it's like a calloused a calloused
1: heart <laughs> no it's the protection it's the turtle principle what we is pray. the turtle principle well the turtle principles we create walls like the turtle shell to protect ourselves. And when we're ready to stick our neck out, then we do. So we go in and out. Yeah. So that honoring that ability to protect yourself is very, very important. Yeah. Yeah.
3: Well, I also just like immediately after that, like I said, like we connected and you have been just like open about who you are in your life. And we'll get into that more later. But I, from the moment I met you, was stunned by you. <laughs> You're a stunning human. Not only are you incredibly beautiful, but you're incredibly, you really get, you go deep with people.
2: Yeah, I think I connect with people very easily. It's like a thing that I've always been able to do.
3: Yeah. How did that, why do you think that is?
2: I don't know. I think in high school, I was like a nerd who didn't talk to anyone and like read V.C. Andrews books in my room. Cool. Um, But I think that when I started making like, college friends I think I'd sort of started to become like the person that I am now kind of um and I just um I don't know I I think that when you leave high school and you like go out and like you finally like the stereotypical like finding yourself thing I had a lot of different types of friends in college like with different like backgrounds and so maybe that started me being able to like like get on a level with different kinds of people like I think if you're friends with many different types of people on, like, really good friends with them, then you have empathy for, like, all sorts of different kinds of people. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Oh, okay. Yeah, so then you, like, internalize that, and then I think the way that I think about people often is me trying to sort of see things from their perspective, and it's just like, unconscious thing that I do, which makes it very easy to, like, connect with them.
1: Sounds like you're an empath.
3: That's, people have accused me of that before. <laughs> you're a serial empath. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, the way I feel about you and how you are as a person is that it's like you pick up a conversation with someone you've never met right in the middle of like that you've been friends for 10 years. And it's like, oh yeah, so that (laughs) time 10 years ago when we were floating down the uh, Mississippi together and we encountered that big crocodile. I don't even know if there are crocodiles in the Mississippi, but I've heard. I think there are. But that's how you are. Like you just pick up naturally right in the middle of a lifetime with a stranger. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something that has always really interested me about you. And I've wondered where that's come from. And I think that that, I mean, I think, people have different kind of ways of coping. or Maybe some things are just like normal ways that sure. they've been forever. And I think for other people, like the desire to connect, um, comes out of necessity. That's true. Right. That's right. Yeah. So I'm curious, I know a little bit about your upbringing. I know that you uh, were raised in the great state of Indiana in <laughs> the 1980s and 90s. Yes, that's true. Can you expand upon that? What was it like, uh, growing up in Indiana?
2: <laughs> well, um, Indiana is pretty much what you would imagine. I grew up in like a like a working class suburb, um, and my parents divorced early on, and so eventually, how old were you? I was one, uh-huh. or I think my sister. I mean, my sister was one, and I was two. Um, yeah. I think she she's probably going to be mad at me for getting this wrong. But um, <laughs> I sh- then my parents get, like basically did this. Um, what was unusual. They had like custody issues for years, which eventually ended up in me being us being like at my dad's for one week and then at my mom's for one week. Which um, by the time that was happening, we were I think we were probably in middle school. Shannon, don't kill me. Um, (laughs) And then at the time, that seemed really unusual. None of the other divorced kids had that arrangement. And um, but since meeting more people, I found that that actually was a common divorce like custody agreement and that people did where you just spend one week with one parent right one week with the other but it's interesting because the two households were very different like my mom um is very religious and you know she was a single mom and she um you know was like basically raising us on her own and my dad remarried and then um his second wife had three teenage kids mm-hmm. um who were, like, you know, super into the 80s and, like, hair metal and, like, just, like, I was, and when they, my dad we married. you know, I'm, like, five. I'm pretty young still. Yeah. Um, and so it's just, it's very interesting to, like, go from being the only kid to, like, having these three almost, like, grown, they weren't grown, but, you know, teenage yeah. people in the house. It was just, like, a very different dynamic. And yeah. um, it was a little bit more, like, we could do whatever we wanted at my dad's house a little bit, more freedom. Right. We couldn't really do what we wanted. My dad was still kind of, like, a disciplinarian, but, um... And then my mom's, we was more very more strict. Like she's very strict, and like she would braid my hair every day before school. So it's an interesting thing to think about. Because I so this like middle school or like you know I guess it was before middle school, but like. At one week, my hair would be braided every single day in a French braid, <laughs> and then the other week, my hair would just be down, because my dad didn't French braid, or my stepmom didn't French braid
1: my hair. Wow. <laughs> yeah. It sounds like tight and controlled and free. Yeah. Yeah. yeah back, back and forth. Really, ah. yeah.
3: I had the same thing, really. I mean, when I was at Bobby's house, when I was growing up, uh, my parents would split the week, so it was similar, but like even yeah. though, like more back and forth, crazy. But it's crazy either way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And then my dad's was very controlled with a step parent who was very, it was very different. So that kind of like back and forth flip-flopping, changing who you are all the time Mm -hmm. is actually interesting. Going back to our first point probably is what helps people become adaptable and like just dig right in with folks because it's like you kind of have to, you have to just like become like a chameleon to whatever situation you're
1: in. You also have to learn to read the environment. Right, and that's how people become empaths: is that they grew up learning how to read the environment. It wasn't about them; it was about them fitting into something else. That's interesting. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, because I feel I have like this sense of like
2: I got to pick what I was wearing at my dad's house um, and like be like more like myself. But then like, but there was less structure there, and less like you know it was a little bit more chaotic there. Mm -hmm. And then at my mom's house, you know, I couldn't pick what I had to wear. She would braid my hair, and like it was very structured and very like yeah. So like two different dynamics. I
1: always say there's a price to pay for everything. So yeah. each thing had its consequence. Totally. Right? Yeah. Yes, very Absolutely. Different.
3: What was the, what was the food structure? Like, I mean, were you guys like Lashkey kids? Did you like go home to like, either of your folks house after school and like, you know, snack on gushers and <laughs> weirdo snacks or? No.
2: Um, I think my first stepmom, my dad has since divorced and remarried a third time. Uh, so my first stepmom, she was a stay at home mom. Most of the time she had, sometimes she had some jobs, but Um, So she would cook for us and I remember, I actually, I was pretty young so I don't totally remember her, she wasn't like a good cook but she would do like tuna casserole, Mm -hmm. like things like that. I do have um, a lot of memories of her, she would send us to the meat market which is like this little deli on the main street which is like a little bit down the road from our house and we would get two liters of Pepsi for her and um, like lunch meat and we would just make sandwiches or just get sandwiches at the deli and bring them back. Um, so lots of, bologna and cheese sandwiches, yeah. fish sticks and macaroni and cheese, um, and then on my mom's side, also not a great cook, um, but she had these Betty Crocker cookbooks, um, like the yeah. old eighty one, like the ones with the tabs, yeah, and like the you know the hard thing, yeah. Um, then and she also had this book, which is my favorite. Cookbook, it's just called How to Boil Water. Um, Amazing. Yeah, and it's like, it's basically a how to guide for a newlywed woman <laughs> to cook for her husband. Um, and my favorite scene, it's like illustrated. And one of my favorite scenes is like a woman laying on the couch, like I think she's like watching TV. And there's like in the kitchen behind her, there's like smoke rising. And the, the <laughs> caption is like, you can't cook while you're watching your stories or something like very condescending. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Um, Dad, take
3: those shoes off and yeah. get back in
1: the kitchen, lady. <laughs> Do you think your mom was insecure about cooking? Was it? You know, we just didn't
2: really. Actually, no. I mean, she was more of a. She would love to bake, um, so she would bake a lot for like her coworkers and her friends. So I think that she thought of herself as a good baker. Um, but in terms of cooking, we just kind of like there was stuff that like I would I was a really picky eater. Um, there was stuff that I just like wouldn't eat, and so she kind of worked around that but sometimes she would just be like we're having pork chops and you have to eat them um and then but yeah i don't think she didn't really talk to us about cooking it wasn't we just weren't like a family that thought
1: about food in that way and as a kid that's one thing we have control over one of the things we have control over is what you eat and what you don't eat right do you <laughs> and think that' say no
3: do you think that's why kids are so picky because i do know that like the, the human palate takes a certain amount of times to eat something before you actually accept it but like I wonder, that's actually so fascinating you say that about control. Right. I actually never really thought of that, is that kids generally feel like they have no control, because they really don't. You have control of so yeah. little as a child. And um, it's fascinating to me, because actually I was a picky eater as a kid, if you can believe it. And then I when believe I... It. <laughs> believe it or not, Mom, <laughs> do you believe it? <laughs> You're like, you bitch. <laughs> um, so I was a picky eater as a kid, and then as, as soon as I went to... Uh, college. I was not picky at all. I don't huh. think there was a single or married so thing. It had I had more eat. to do in relationship.
1: You were picky in relationship.
3: I think that you know I had personally like I had hurt feelings and I didn't I didn't want to give you what you wanted. It was a which way of was, saying no. It was control.
1: Yeah,
2: yeah. That's interesting. Yeah, that I is actually, a power. Thing. I actually
1: learned that with um, a nephew that I had as a baby. He didn't go to the bathroom, and when it was discovered, it was really about control. His parents were in the middle of a divorce, and that right. was the one thing he had control over. Yep. What was he doing with it? <laughs> he didn't go. He just didn't go. Yeah, no, that's, yeah. that's not funny. That's the thing. Yeah.
3: Um, so did you guys ever eat uh, in front of the TV? Did you eat at, like, the table together? Would you go out to restaurants?
2: Um, we So we we ordered... My mom was barely, like, she tried not to have us eat out too much, but we would definitely order pizza several times. Like, Well, you know, like, at least once a week we would have pizza. Um, and we would we'd eat in front of the TV 50% of the time. I feel like we definitely ate at the table at my mom's Mm -hmm. um and and my dad's the living room's kind of small so we were kind of always eating in the table at my dad's house too just because it's like the only place where you could eat but it wasn't necessarily like the whole family gathers around it's more like we're all just kind of like there trying to fit everyone in the kitchen and then kind of eating and shifts a little bit um but yeah I think that I mean my mom was you know when we were about I don't know. When we were in middle school, she started making us do housework as part of our chores, um, which included sometimes maybe making food.
3: Okay.
2: Um, I also remember the first time that she showed me how to do the laundry which, as part of my like, chore. I was like, famously, she told me the story. I was like, who was doing all this before I had to start doing it? <laughs> she was like, me,
1: dude. Santa. <laughs> <laughs> That's
2: um, really funny. You know, but, but
1: yeah. Uh, Nicole, I have a question for you. I was curious when you said your mom liked to bake. What do you remember about that?
2: So she, so this is something my sister and I, which I guess maybe we can, whatever, the thread can go through. But um, she and I still now try to remake her chocolate chip cookies, but she didn't do anything crazy with them. She just followed the Toll House recipe, but she subbed Crisco for butter. (gasps) Ooh. Yeah. So, which is, I thought. I, really, I always liked her cookies because they're a little bit saltier, and then the vanilla was a little bit more prevalent. Yeah. Um, and I thought that was always the reason, although my sister's been doing some experimenting lately, and we're not we're not totally sure if that's what it was. I don't know. <laughs> um, but also, you, trans fat was in Crisco back then, and now it's not, so maybe that has something yeah. to do with it. I mean, who knows? But, um, but she also would make these chocolate sheet cakes all the time, um, and then she would make these pecan tarts for, like, holidays, um, which I hated because I didn't like nuts, but they're like basically just like tiny pecan pies, which were really cool. Um, and and she would make pecan pie, also like full size, um, and that's kind of like her go-to's that she would make pretty often.
1: So part of it is the concept of when you conjure that up, you imagine her ba- the baking and her baking, and maybe you weren't watching, it, maybe you were, right. but the tasting of it, the smell of it. You know, what kind of feelings does that bring up now?
2: It makes me very, like, instantly go to, like, a certain age. Like, because eventually, like, once I went to high school, like, you know, our relationship changed. But also then she, there's, she also, like, went to nursing school while I was in middle school. So good for her. Yeah. So she, but, but that changed her, like, time. So she, and then she, when she became a nurse, she, like, switched up her schedule so that she was working only on the weeks that we weren't with her. Um, and so she was always home when we were there. Um, but you know, it kind of like base I think in high school is when I started, you know, hanging out with my friends more, we were in a like the natural progression. So thinking about baking makes me think about being like young and like eating her food makes me just be like, I'm like, I have to be like around 12 or 10 or like, you know. And does like.
1: it bring up thoughts and feelings about her, about your mom?
2: Yeah, I think that it just, it's sort of. It's, like, tied together with nostalgia. Yeah, like, so it's all sort of, like, this, like, picture exactly, like, what our kitchen looked like. Um, and, like, the memories that I have there are all, like, she, you know, she was the only one that, in that house with us. You know, she never remarried or anything. Um, and so, yeah, it brings back, like, the time when things were, like, good and, like, happy. And um, although they were still, like, nothing's perfect.
3: But yeah. <laughs> So do you, you know... The whole MO of this show is obviously to talk about the intersection between food and grief. So understanding a little bit about your background, your relationship with food, like, uh, I'd want to ask you to Mm -hmm. share with the listeners a little bit about what, what was the breaking point? There's a situation that happened with your mom and Mm -hmm. if you could kind of just tell us a little bit about how that all went down and into maybe present day a bit.
2: Yeah. So I'm going to try not to take too long to tell. It's kind of a long story, but as long uh, as you need. Okay. Um, yeah. But basically, around the time that I was in high school, um I was maybe even I was trying to remember this day i'm pretty sure that I was in college already um and my sister was still living at home in high school, but my mom started to sort of exhibit signs of mental illness, but we didn't know you know we're, we didn't know idea like at the time what that meant like we wouldn't we weren't even sure like. It was just like very, we didn't know. Um, <clears throat> and so she, you know, she was a nurse. She was working with people. And we just started to hear some things from other people. And then also noticed that she was saying things like that, you know, she had to sell our house that right. we had grown up in. And because, like, the God had told her that she was going to get married to this man. Right. Um, and, so th- and so she did that at what point then she sold the house. She sold the house. Okay. Um, and that was really, you know, if you don't mind me saying fucked up, because yeah. that the one thing that, she, that her narrative with us had her whole life had been like, I am proud of myself because I raised two kids on my own. And like my whole family told me that I shouldn't buy a house. I should just rent. And like, and, um, I, you know, and like she was like, I'm so proud of myself for like buying this house and like making it on my own. <clears throat> And so, for her to sell that, in addition to the, the normal trauma of like, you're like, this is my childhood home, but it was also like, this was like her accomplishment that like right. symbolized that.
3: Were you concerned because she was doing this? Did this raise a lot of red flags? Or at that point, were you kind of just like.
2: So, this is another thing that's kind of like not cool is it I, I was kind of absent. My sister was there. I mean, like, we were both there, but like, my sister bore the brunt of it. So, essentially, what happened when she sold the house. Um and we I mean we were talking about it. I was around we had to like have a conversation with her because she thought that when she sold the house that um this person was going to come and like marry her. So uh, she was
1: having delusions. Yes.
2: Um but we did not know like how to deal with that and she would you know she was still lucid, she was still actually at the time she was still working as a nurse. Um and she, it was just very bizarre, you know, and <clears throat> my sister and I didn't really know what to do. So we were like, okay, mom's being crazy. Um, this person's obviously, you know, maybe doesn't exist. And so now she. Wet that whistle. Yeah, sorry. No, no it's fine. Um, in sadness, but, um, yeah. she had to move into my sister. So my sister. Oh, okay. Sorry. I think I'm messing up the timeline here, but I had graduated from college at this point. Or no, sorry. That the timeline's kinda weird for my sure. memory, But my sister was living in a studio apartment at that point and my mom in had In Chicago? No, she was in Indianapolis. In Indiana. And so my mom basically had to move into her apartment because she had nowhere to stay. And then my sister had to move back in with my dad. Um Okay. Which was, you know, obviously weird, but Yeah. But she was still kind of I think I'm pretty sure at that time she was still working. So it was kind of like a we had a little conversation about it. We were like we tried to be as frank with her as possible and be like we don't think that this person is going to come um but it, at that point it was too late like she the like the house had been sold um but then she hard to
1: know how to deal with delusions
2: yes you, know, you go along with it or disagree it we didn't yeah we had no idea what to do and also we didn't totally fully like i think know it was a delusion we were kind of like we just didn't you know, we had, had you were no kids. idea
3: yeah <laughs> you were kids and your mom was yeah. going off the deep end and how could you possibly know how to deal with it because we yeah we yeah we don't we aren't equipped for that.
2: Yeah. And she's like a single, like she doesn't have a husband or a partner and like she had friends, but like, you know, she also like, we now, you know, she had some sort of like patterns that we now know, like where she would like change friends. Like she would have really, really close friends um, for a couple of years and then like have a falling out with them and then sort of change to a new friend. Um, So there wasn't people like around us to like support us or help us. And she was also estranged from the rest of her family at that point. Um, so we were just kind of alone yeah. and didn't know what to do. It, it seemed sort of like an easy fix to put her in the studio apartment. She kind of like came back to reality then mm-hmm. and then stayed there for a while. And then finally got her own apartment mm-hmm. like in Indianapolis. Okay. Um, and then that was fine for a while. At this point I had, cause I was going to college at a commuter school, but then I went, um, to Purdue. Okay. Um, so I was away like an hour away. Um, but my sister stayed in Indianapolis and was around more. Um but essentially a, a, I don't remember the timeline, but a couple years passed, everything was fine, and then she had some sort of other break with reality <clears throat> that led to, you know, similar delusions, um and paranoia and um just like all that stuff um and my sister was dealing with a lot of it, so I came down to kind of help. Um and my mom just, she like freaked out, I think panicked and then disappeared. So we, she like wrote my sister this letter that was like, you know, like very paranoid. And right. um, and then she left and we were like, where? We don't know where she is. So at that point, we called the police. Um, and that's when we started to find out how hard it is to find a missing person who is an adult. Right. Um, it's very difficult to get the police to even consider it. Um, how long did she disappear
3: for that first time?
2: So we, we uh, well, so the thing is, is like we called the police. There, a detective contacted us and she was extremely rude and very mean to us. Um, the, and the other thing is they didn't take into account like her mental illness. Like They didn't care about that. Um, but then she was gone that time. I can't exactly remember how long but then at that some point she called us from Chicago um saying like I've found these people they've taken me in um I'm okay um but then she's gonna stay in Chicago at that point
3: mm-hmm.
2: and, and so w- if I may yeah what are you, where are you at
3: emotionally
2: at this <laughs> point we my sister and I are both like kind of living together to my sister and I are like not as close at this point as we are now. Right. So I was like doing my college experience, like doing drugs, like um, like having my boyfriend, and like you know, I also had like an eating disorder at the time. And you feel like it
3: was inflamed by the what complications of what's going on in your yeah, life, with I your mean,
2: mom? It was all like very obviously now. Like I was reacting to this, but I didn't really know how to react. It's subconsciously, like it was, and yeah. Subconsciously. It was. It was like, um, it was so shocking. And weird and there was no one to help us and it's part of us, part of me anyway didn't want to deal with it. Like I didn't want to have to be, I didn't want to have to, be, I was
3: angry. I didn't want to have to deal with this. Of course. And my first thought is and I know that people do this with food often. You said you're uh, wrestling with an eating disorder. Yeah. Um, is it common mom from your experience when people are uh, unable to punish or yell or uh, have an encounter with the person that they're angry with to take out that pain on themselves like
1: well you're talking about internalizing pain rather than externalizing pain and we're not really taught the tools how to externalize pain very easily. Right. right.
3: So your mom mm-hmm. is missing. She's left you. So you're it's... in college. You're trying to, like, it, that's already such a shaky time for a human being, especially exactly. a human woman, yeah. to be alive and try to, like, form healthy habits. You're away from home. Like, you're on your own. You're forming your own kind of basis of, like, self-care and nurturing. And then someone who is your most important person yeah. has now completely abandoned you. You have no idea where they are. And so you're you're harming
2: yeah, and it, and my sister um, was just working so much. At the time, she was kind of like starting a career in retail, and she was working a ton and traveling for work a lot, um, and she and I just weren't really talking that much, right. um, honestly. I think that we kind of had, I think I kind of pulled away. I kind of like tried to escape from that, and so mm-hmm. I, wasn't, I wasn't coming home as very much and just like tried to kind of, stay away as much as possible because it was too hard to deal with. Of
1: course. I like to think of it, if you think of energy, you know, and trauma is an energy that builds up, you know, like a volcano. Yeah. And either energy can go out or it goes in. It has to go somewhere. So what you were doing is, I guess, internalizing all that energy and it was so painful you wanted to kind of ignore it and find different ways to either push it down or not pay attention to it. That was the best way to deal. You didn't have the support, so yeah, Yeah. that was your best way to deal. Running,
3: outrunning the dragon that's chasing you. Mm -hmm. What, where, like, so your mom ends up in Chicago. You guys are in Indiana still. Where do you next kind of reconvene with her?
2: So it's sort of, um, this story sort of starts to play out repeatedly over spans of time. So she will then, so once that happened, she kind of came back to normal. Mm-hmm. Um, got an apartment in Chicago. Got a nursing job, um, and then was fine for a couple of years. We would go visit her in Chicago. Um, but at this point, our relationship had changed. Um, my sister and I, I think, had a lot of anger towards her, and so, and we didn't really talk about things um, because she would just like be off, you know, break from reality, and then come back and be regular. And but we wouldn't really bring it up. How confusing. Yeah, and then... So I think that we were, like... At least I... I don't want to speak for my sister, um, but I I resented her. And so our relationship was just, like, really... It got to the point where, like, we were just kind of always, like, bickering whenever we were hanging out and, like, wasn't really, like, enjoying our time together. And I was, like, so annoyed by her all the time Um, just for, like, normal stuff, like not wanting to eat Indian food. Uh,
3: Are you still struggling with an eating disorder at this time?
2: Well, I mean, I think that... It's hard. It's sort of like alcoholism. I think. I think that I, it's still in me, but I don't. I, it's not. Not. I'm not. It's not ever present. Actively, yeah. But yeah. I think that um, it's definitely like. I feel like my neural pathways have yeah. been like permanently
1: sort of. Yeah. In, I don't know. Like, That's what happens with trauma? Yeah. Yeah. There, there are ways to repair our neural pathways. There are. Actually, yes. There okay. are. <laughs> oh
3: my God, Bobby. <laughs> Bobby Comforto, repairing neuropathways, one at a time. <laughs> um, okay, so so yeah, then so that would it would be fine for a couple of
2: years, and then something would happen, and you know, sort of the same pattern. She would disappear for some time, um, and then come back, and it was always again. My sister, I think, at this point, might have even my sister was living in Chicago at this point, point. Um, and so every time it would happen, and I was living in Seattle, I believe, um, but at every time it was happening my sister would be the one that she would call and like she would have to go like at the last time my sister was living in an apartment with like two roommates and my mom had to move in with them and live on the couch, which is like not great. Um, And then she ended up staying with them for a year or maybe a little bit more. And my sister and I actually, so the last time that she came back from being missing, I flew from wherever I was living. I can't even remember to Chicago. I guess I was here at that point. Um, I flew to Chicago, and we decided that we were going to try to, like, get her help, um, which is also very difficult to do for an adult. Um, So we, you cannot admit someone against their will, even unless they're threatening someone's life or their own life. But my mom, when she came back from her last stint as missing, had injured herself. Like, she said that she had tried to kill herself. So she had, like, a wound on her arm that was very deep and like obvious and yeah. so we were like okay we can use this to like admit her against her will but so we took her to like the Chicago state like whatever place that you go yeah. <laughs> um, for people that don't have insurance and they and she talked to a couple people and they were like she's fine it was a cry for help we're not gonna you know she's she doesn't need to be in here yeah. Um, you know because she's very smart and she knew how to talk her way out of it and she manipulated them. But then at that point, my sister and I had no way no way to help her. Like, we we couldn't do anything. Right. And so we just kind of had to be like, well, we can't let her be homeless so she can stay with my sister. But, like, there was at that, was nothing we could do except for, like, there's, like, a mental place that you can send someone that's, like, $60,000 a month or something crazy. Right. It's, like, completely unaffordable for, like, the majority of
3: right. people. There's no middle ground.
2: And at one point, the woman in Chicago, the health person, she suggested that my mom that we move her to San Francisco because the mental health facilities there are so much more open and capable of handling something like this. Um, but so we didn't do that. My mom wasn't open to that. Um, we tried to convince her to admit herself and she was not, not open to that either. Um, and so then she stayed with my sister for about a year and then she disappeared again. Um, And that, she has not come back since then.
1: How long has that been?
2: I'm pretty sure it's been about four or five years now. my
1: God. Yeah, it's been a long time. It's, yeah. Nicole, I'm curious. There were so many points of crisis and trauma uh, repeatedly over and over again. Yeah. How do you think you deal with those types of crises? When you look back, what is your go-to? What are are the ways that you cope?
2: Um, I think, honestly... For the, I mean, a lot of it was just, like, not dealing with it for a long time. Um, and then I think I used my friends. Like, I, I became very, like, a person whose, like, family is their friends. Um, when I lived in Seattle, I had, like, a very close group of friends that um, was kind of, like, my family there, and I'm still close with most of them. And then in New York, the same sort of thing, kind of. I had, like, a tribe of people or a clique because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> um, I'm not... I'm not supposed to say tribe, Uh, but, (laughs) um, and I think that that's been helpful to me. Although I don't, I wouldn't necessarily like, oh, like I wouldn't talk about, I wouldn't use them to like actively process it, but it was like a way for me to cope with feeling like, you know, helpless and angry and like, you know, not knowing what to do in a situation and not having control. Right. Um, I think that that definitely like
1: played into that. And bringing us back to the, the concept of food Do you think those times of crisis, you would find yourself not wanting to eat, you know, punishing yourself by not eating, eating? I mean, what do you think your relationship to food was during times of crisis?
2: I think that um, my sister and I think we use food to reward ourselves. So Mm -hmm. I think that we tend to, when we're together, overeat. um, And I think part of that has to do with maybe like the processing of our shared like traumatic experience yeah. um and for us at this point it's, it's a really fun thing but um we definitely like when for a while when i was going home for christmas and holidays like we would like make ourselves sick like we would go to like, like eat fast food and then we would eat at my dad's house and then we eat all these like we just like a lot of overeating yeah um and i think that that's definitely like related somehow although i don't know exactly how
3: yeah. <laughs> well i mean i think that food is something that people uh it's essentially supposed to be self care, right? So right. like eating a nourishment from like a very cave point. Caveman or woman point of view, cave person point of view, Mm -hmm. um, is like self-care and nourishment. Right. And then we kind of adapt it through like memory. Right. So we associate it with positive memories, negative memories, and those things are formed when usually we're children. So in, in our earlier questioning kind of like, did you eat around the table? Did you, were you a latchkey kid? Did you come home and cook for yourself? Like, what are those things you establish these kind of traditions that are either forged positively or negatively? And it doesn't, I don't think always have to do with like, Oh, my mom was a, terrible cook, so my memories of food are terrible. Right. You know what I mean? My memories
2: of food are not terrible. Right.
3: like I think
2: it's funny to talk about the food I was eating now in the world that I work in, which is
3: like, you know, nice food. (laughs) I mean, honestly, my parents were both chefs, and I ate like shit when I was a kid. I mean, shit. Like, absolute (laughs) shit. Like, the worst junk food crap imaginable. Yeah. I mean, it was great. Right. But like, you know, for me, so, I always think about how I was a little bit of a latchkey kid Mm -hmm. in certain ways and I would attach like eating uh, to like when my parents would come home, you know, like my mom would come home and she'd be done with clients. That was like, then there'd be dinner. And I was excited because that's like a Pavlovian response in some way. Right. And also like emotional connection. Right. And so then I think like when you kind of live this whole life and there's like trauma and grief and pain and you find like that attachment, uh, I think it kind of just like, plays itself out. Right. So you've gone, you've experienced this thing with your mom. Then you're like trying to figure out how to nourish yourself right at the point, like when you're becoming an independent person, right as she's leaving you. And then you find yourself years later and, uh, as a real fully formed adult and your relationships with how you nourish yourself, whether it be mentally, physically, or with food have then like really changed a lot. Yeah. So what is it like for you now? Like, do you, do you have like cravings or memories for things that you used to experience with your family, with mom or dad, but like specifically as a result of this trauma, like do you, are there memories of things she used to make that like make, tug at your heartstrings or, you know, like. Yeah. I, um, like I mentioned that cookbook, how to boil water, I actually purchased it.
2: It it was, it's been out of print. It's very obscure apparently, but, um, (laughs) I purchased that um, a couple of years ago on Amazon and kind of mostly for like the, the nostalgia factor. But then I actually started looking through it because there was this one recipe that my sister and I was like a favorite called tuna puffs. Tuna, tuna puffs. puffs.
3: <laughs> uh, as seen in Diner Journal. Uh,
2: yeah. Um, and it's a really interesting dish, uh, which is tuna, instant mashed potato flakes, um, and you kind of and, uh, you know, mix it all together and make these balls. Yum. And then you bake them so they get crunchy on the outside. And they're actually really delicious. Um, when I was actually making them for the test for the Diner Journal, they were like, they were very sure that it was going to be disgusting, but then they were <laughs> pleasantly surprised. <laughs> I bet. That sounds amazing. That sounds amazing.
3: It's basically like potato starch, so you get that like crunch, crunch on the outside. Yeah. yeah.
2: Um, at some point, somebody was like, against all odds, this is a delicious dish. But um, so my sister and I, That has been sort of, like, the thread, that dish of our, like, child, like, leaving home. And, like, I used to make that in my my first apartment. Um, And then I kind of, like, forgot about it for a while. And then recently my sister and I have been talking about that and, like, talking about that recipe. And then also, like I said, we've been trying to, like, recreate those cookies. Which part of the issue is, like, in my mind, they taste a very specific way because of this. And in my sister's mind, they taste a very specific way because of a completely different reason. And it's really interesting to to hear that and also she and I one time tried to like combine forces and use (laughs) both of our ideas and it resulted in very messed up cookies that were (laughs) not edible (laughs) um but I think that's something that I think now at this point because time has passed and we've been able to like have time to process it um we can come back to this stuff without as much pain exactly um I think there was definitely a period of time when we wouldn't have been able to like talk about this and so comfortably with each yeah. other and like um
1: we'll it, talk about neural pathways it's another neural pathway oh. instead of going to the pain neural pathway you go to something that brought you pleasure and sentiment and emotion you know yeah. positive emotion interesting yeah
3: yeah i mean it's uh it's it's to me striking i think in situations like this we actually lose a parent or in this situation which i think and i know that this is very important to you to kind of talk about and I appreciate you being so vulnerable about because I think it's something we really don't talk about and it's a it feels probably very unique to people whose parents are missing uh and who ostensibly like leave them
2: mm-hmm.
3: I can't imagine the pain of that and uh, I think it forces us to kind of reparent as many of us do for many reasons like you've now been forced to reparent yourself yes. and I think in many ways you're reteaching yourself after like a decade plus of kind of traumatic experiences since I've known you even in the past couple of years, I've seen you grow so much as a person in terms of how you care for yourself. Yeah. And I, you know, we still do have like a couple drunken nights a year where you have like 20 vodka sodas and smoke a <laughs> pack of cigarettes I think Commodore, that's, but that's New York city. Not necessarily. Yeah. Later, but but uh, do you feel that way that you yeah. can forced to reparent yourself? I think that I,
2: you know, when I was recounting my like college experience while this was all happening, I was a mess. I was, like, such a mess in college. Like, I was just, like, basically, I don't even, I mean, like, I picture myself as just, like, this ball of crazed emotion There's like, contained in skin. Yeah, like, it's just, like, very, like, chaotic and, like, messed up and just, like, everything was so raw emotionally, which is, like, true for many early 20-year-olds in general. But it was kind of, like, just very crazy time. And then it, so I think, I always say I'm, like, a late bloomer because I think it took me longer than typical to like sort of work through that period of time. And then Mm -hmm. I moved a lot. I was also like, I moved, like I moved from, I moved to New York and then I moved back to Indiana and then I moved to Seattle and then I moved back to New York. So I kind of like was bouncing around throughout my twenties a lot, which is, um, like I felt like I had to, like, there was never a question that I would be moving somewhere and not say in Indiana, um, which is something I think about now. I'm like, it's interesting in like this context. i like, I was obviously trying to like probably run away from that. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, so I think that it's taken me a lot longer, or, you know, maybe not a lot longer, but I feel like now at this point in my life I feel more settled and, like, regular and, like, my emotions are, you know, like, I'm no – and part of that might just be because I'm older too. But, yeah, I think definitely more steady, more calm. Like, Yeah.
3: But I, I've seen that even with how you just – cook for yourself or take care of yourself, like specifically coming uh, pertaining to food. When I first met you, I mean, your living situation was slightly different, but I, you know, you would sustain yourself on like hummus and tequila as, Mm. as would I, you know what (laughs) I mean? But like, I've just been really impressed. You're like on your own, you have your sister and you have your dad, but you're on your own and you're also someone who like deeply is like authentic in their pain, which I think is rare. I think a lot of people try to pretend they're not in pain and I think, and something I've learned for you in my, in my own experience with pain and loss is like being very authentically in my pain. It's hard.
2: I don't, I don't think there's a lot of, it's, you do no, it well. Yeah. Well, I don't think, I I don't. You wear it well. <laughs> I think that's interesting. I think that part of that comes from me wanting to, maybe because I'm in pain also is why I, I can be more empathetic to people too, is just like yeah. that knowledge that like everyone kind of has something painful yeah. in their life. Amen. Yeah. Um. And, yeah, but I do think it is hard to i mean for a long time, I wouldn't talk about my mom to and to like most people in my life didn't really know the story, yeah. um, which is part of the reason why I wanted to come here and talk about it because I do think that it is helpful to talk about this as a group so that other people can feel like they're not alone mm-hmm. and um and, and to also help you integrate it, yeah, and it's not embarrassing mm-hmm. that something happened to me, but it you know it still feels kind of like uncomfortable, yeah. and it does feel like. I'm somehow, like, less than because I have this weird, you know, or maybe not less than, but, like, you know, I'm, like, I
3: don't know how to explain it. But I like, completely agree. Yeah. Sorry to cut you off, but I completely understand. When I found out last year that I had a long-lost brother, yeah, I felt the same way. and And it's a different scenario, but I'm, like, I don't want to be a part of this club necessarily. Right. You know what I mean? Like, I don't want to be a part of the club that's like alt and different. I want to be one of the kids that sat around the table Mm -hmm. and not in front of the TV. And I want to be one of the kids whose parents are always home and always, and then we had three square meals a day and everything was fine. And I don't want to be this person. But like, then you're like, well, you know what? Fuck it. I am this person. And how do I, how do I live? Even though like, that's what it is. It's called
1: Acceptance. And acceptance is a process that we work through with difficult things that happen in life. And it doesn't happen right away. It's back and forth, back and forth. But ultimately, with acceptance, we can integrate it. And what I was about to say before is that talking about it, for you, it was locked away in some chamber somewhere. Yeah. And it gets distorted that way. You know, the more you bring it out, it can become more integrated in your life and help you accept it. So I hope that this has helped today a little bit. Yeah. How, how are you feeling right now?
2: I'm feeling good. It's also, it's true that um, talking about it more it's also sort of normalizes it because you also, it's true, like if it's stuck in your head, then you make up a story about how like everyone's going to react to hearing this information, but it's very rarely true. Yeah. Um, and also what kind of person would
3: be like a jerk about that? Well, yeah. So I have a question, kind of just in wrapping this whole thing up a little bit, um, I, I think that we're going to kind of ask everybody, yeah. if you can make something to nurture yourself, and I, in my own kind of work in therapy recently, I've been talking a lot about with my therapist, how we're essentially the same person that we've always been since we're cogniz- you know, since we're like cognizant of like our surroundings, right? So you're still the kid who was at home, like having your mom make those perfect cookies that you couldn't understand what was the in The little them. girl inside. Exactly. And mm-hmm. you're the teenager and you're the college kid, and right. you're yourself four years ago at Brucey, and you're yourself now. So thinking about yourself as that whole picture, that whole woman who's like lived this entire life, like what would you make for yourself any one of those or all of you that would be like a comforting caring nurturing thing that you could make for yourself
2: i really think that the tuna puffs are that it checks every because it's like it's gone it's been a part of all of those stages you yeah. know like um and it is such a nostalgic flavor but also something that i like my favorite thing that she would make um mm-hmm. and so i think that that's something that definitely is like very specifically comfort food in like the True definition of like what it is. Yeah. Um, Then the other thing I was talking about with my friend the other day is I used to, I remade myself this little snack that I used, that I came up with in college. Okay. Or no, sorry, when I was in middle school and high school, I think, Um, which is I would take a saltine and put a slice of cheddar on it and then put Taco Bell mild sauce on top of that because we always had Taco Bell sauce in our house left over. And I, like, recreated that the other day, and I was like, this is delicious. I love this snack food Yum. <laughs> that my weird teenage self invented. Um, that's a good snack. Yeah, it's good. Yeah, that's a yummy one. Cheese and crackers, you can't get yeah. But, yeah, I think that the tuna and the cookies are both very, yeah. very much, like, tied to that and, like, very
1: comfort food. Like, yeah. You know, one of the things I often suggest to clients is that when you think of something comforting, whether it's food or a place or a person, you can use that as a resource. So, if there's a time that you feel particularly you're struggling, you can almost like conjure up the tuna pot for oh. make it or, you know, because it's a resource. Right, that's interesting. Okay. Yeah. A tool. Yeah.
3: I think that you're an incredibly bold and brave person, and yes. I'm in love with you. <laughs> I have been in love with you since we met. I think that you're just one of the most remarkable, like, I, like truly outstanding people. Like, I have like a deep desire to like be around you, which you obviously know because I stalk you to try to get to hang out with <laughs> you. Me. Do stalk me, <laughs> um, and I have stalked you since day one. But I really do, and I think it's because you're so incredibly vulnerable and so intelligent and funny and smart. And you're just like a very brave human being. Like you walk through the world like with extreme bravery, even though you've had a really hard life and you also are not the kind of person who's like pretends that it doesn't affect them. And you also don't, you know, you, you really, again, like are authentic to your own story and pain and you do a really good job of just being, Hey, this is me. Um, you also, I know like mask it with, (laughs) <laughs> humor sometimes, sure. but you're, you're a really intelligent and self-aware and emotionally intelligent person. And I can't thank you enough for being vulnerable and sharing what this experience must be like. And I know that you had wanted to mention quickly about, um, just advocating, I think, right. For, yeah, I don't even, people.
2: I don't have like a, a charity or anything. I just think that it's important to talk about Mental illness. And I know everyone knows that, but like it's it's there's still no resources available for people who have mental illness. Um and like if my mom is trying to get help somewhere, like her resources are limited. Like I don't even know like what she would be able to do. And like in this depends
1: on the community, it depends on yeah. the state. Mm-hmm. And but I would like to mention one thing which is NAMI. The- NAMI is an organization for family members of people with mental illness. And it's a nationwide organization. You okay. can find it N-A-M-I. NAMI. NAMI. An
2: AMI. Okay, that's and they a good have local
1: have. meetings and it's very yeah. supportive.
2: Yeah, it's, it's um. and the other thing is just that, again, like, and this is something that actually a, a friend of mine came up because there is a podcast now about a woman who is potentially missing or maybe she was murdered, but she was like, you know, I was listening to it and it made me think of you and your mom because this woman's having so much trouble just getting the police or anyone to, like, do anything because yeah. there, there's an idea that an adult is allowed to just walk off into the wilderness and yeah. never come back and that we don't, have to do anything about that and and that's you know it's just it's hard so I think it's the more that we talk about this stuff the more people share stories about this kind of thing I think the more we can hopefully start to change things and like get people help and like start coming up with ideas and like fixing some part of the system (laughs) yeah any part really but
3: yeah
1: thank you for your part today so much yeah
3: absolutely thanks for having me if you could um if you guys could do one more meal together
1: yeah, what I think it
3: be? you know. I
2: I don't want to keep harping on the tuna pasta, but that's also no. Please, Are they. I'm some. <laughs> they um. But I also she would make um. I'm trying to think. So she would make this, and again, it was very much like kind of like a one pot meal type of thing. But she would also make us things, and then like she would make these hamburgers with that she would put a one sauce in, and then like you know Yum. pan fry them. And then serve it with, like, pe- frozen peas and corn mixed together with <gasps> butter, um, which mm-hmm. also is another one of my favorite things is just frozen peas and corn.
3: Yum. A pat of butter on top. That's delicious. Yeah. Um, I think you're the best person. I love you so much. And I really, like, I'm just so grateful that you shared your story. And you're just eloquent and beautiful and a <laughs> wonderful human. And uh, I see you, and I know that it's hard for you. And I, like, really admire you for sharing.
2: Thank you. Yeah, it was it was not easy, but it felt like... The right thing to do. So, good. Cool. Thank you, Nicole.
1: Thanks, Nicole. (laughs) This episode has been brought to you by Worldwide Soba, a Japanese noodle production company. Founded by Shuichi Kotani, Worldwide Soba offers noodle consulting services in addition to supplying a variety of tools for wannabe noodle makers. Want to take a class? Worldwide Soba has it. Need a traditional Japanese soba knife? Worldwide Soba has that too. To learn more, visit worldwide-soba.com.
3: So this was a great interview with Nicole. She was amazing. And, you know, I just wanted to kind of tuck into, as, as you guys will know, the name of this episode is Tuna Puffs, based on Nicole's affinity for one of her mom's favorite dishes to make, which was Tuna Puffs. Mom, have you ever had Tuna Puffs before? I have never had a tuna puff. I can only imagine. Okay. Well, they sounded actually delicious. Um, and I just want to mention a couple of things that I researched. So, Nicole was talking about this book, How to Boil Water. And essentially, and at first, when I was looking it up, I found um, some books written by, like, Tyler Florence and Food Network people. But the real book is this vintage book that was written, came out January 1st, 1972, and was written by Jetty, uh, Betty Jane Donahoe. Betty Jane Donahoe. And it's a great book. It's illustrated. It's like a fun, funky retro cover and has all kinds of uh, interesting recipes. And Nicole had mentioned that she bought herself a vintage copy as a way to kind of deal, I guess, process some of the grief attached to her situation with her mom. Yes. Yeah. So, Nicole is from Indiana, which is the Hoosier State. Mm. And a little bit about Indiana, why it's called the Hoosier State, which I think is interesting. Uh, There's two theories as to why it's called that. One is that a contractor named Samuel Hoosier preferred to hire laborers from Indiana rather than the neighboring Kentucky to construct the Louisville and Portland Canal along the Ohio River in the 1820s. The Indiana workers were called Hoosiers Men, which later was shortened to Hoosiers. The other theory is that in 1833, Pittsburgh Statesman article gave an alternate um, possibility, positioning that the word sprang from the surveyors mapping the state who encountered so many squatters on public land that they would call out, who's here? As soon as they spotted cabins with smoke rising from them. The question echoed so frequently on the Indiana frontier that it was shortened and altered to who's here? And finally, That's so funny. Hoosier. I know. So I also want to talk about a couple of fun things that are from Indiana. Hoosier pie, which is a tasty, decadent treat, made like a sugar cream pie, basically, made with brown sugar, vanilla, and crumbly crust, and it's like the classic thing you get from Indiana. Have you ever had that, Mom? I have not.
1: Never had Hoosier pie? Have you ever been to Indiana? I have not. Haven't? Me neither. I'd like to go to State Fair, though. Oh,
3: that would be lovely. Uh the second thing that they have at State Fairs is called sauerkraut balls, which I think we'd love. Yes. Sweaty sauerkraut balls. <laughs> um basically like fried sauerkraut fritters. Wow. They have persimmon pudding. It's also the home of Orville Redenbacher. Popcorn type Tycoon. Um a lot of restaurants feature Hoosier burgers, which are smeared with peanut butter and topped with pickly jalapenos. Oh my goodness. They serve their chili over noodles. Because they're a bunch of crazed lunatics, those Hoosiers. (laughs) Their most famous sandwich is like a fried pork tenderloin schnitzel sandwich. It's the unofficial sandwich of Indiana. And then Nicole also spoke about Toll House Cookies. Yes. Do you love... Do you love a a chocolate chip cook? Of course. Your dad made them the most
1: wonderful and you make them that way too.
3: Thanks. So Nicole mentioned that her mom made them with shortening. So they're probably a bit crispier. I just wanted to mention that the original Toll House recipe was created by a woman named Ruth Graves Wakefield in 1938. She had owned a place called the Toll House Inn and then had written an amazing cookbook called Toll House Tried and True Recipes. Um, And it's, it's just like a fantastic, cool old cookbook. And there's a lot to, if you want to learn more about that, um, please listen to the cookie episode of life's banquet where I talk all about her. Okay. Um, and then mom, I just wanted to quickly talk a little bit about, um, a couple of resources. Uh, Nicole's mom had experienced really, um, severe symptoms of, you know, mental health instability. And I wanted to just give some, um, numbers good. I'm so glad and resources, um, a missing persons resource. That's uh, a good thing to check out is NAMUS, N-A-M-U-S. It's for missing persons. And then the, um, S-A-M-H-S-A-S, uh, national helpline. It's 1-800-662-HELP, um, for substance abuse and mental health services administration
1: good and then i had mentioned the episode nami which is very important it's right the family members of people with mental illness right okay
3: so thanks for listening and thank you so much to nicole and please go home and make yourself some tuna pops and some toll house cookies and Ooh. and check out the hoosier state on your next cross-country trip okay great all right love you mom love you thank you so much for joining us for processing We realize that sharing these types of deeply intimate stories on air is a very personal decision. We began this project as a way to connect our listeners through shared experiences and storytelling. We hope that Processing can be a platform for sharing, learning, and healing. We appreciate our guests' willingness to be vulnerable and value nothing more than making both our guests' and listeners' experiences with our show positive and progressive. If you're interested in being a guest on the show or writing in a listener letter, please email processing.com. At heritageradionetwork.org. Please follow us at processing underscore podcast on Instagram. Processing is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network Food Radio, supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio.